Hello, this is Swami Janeshwar, Swami J. This conversation is about saguna and nirguna, and the paths of meditation and contemplation, with form or without form, which is related to the paths of knowing, jhana yoga, and devotion, bhakti yoga. The discussion involves the approaches individually and how they work together. The recording ends with a 17-minute guided contemplative meditation on either form or the formless. I hope that you enjoy the discussion and the meditation. There's a mystery. There's this, I say with a smile, there's this grand mystery about how these adepts, masters, whatever, work. I can just with 100% certainty tell anybody that stuff is taught from inside. And we all kind of know that. I mean, I'm not saying it's unique information, but... Mantra is a gift. You know, an initiatory mantra is not just, oh, here's a a word out of a book. And a word out of a book can be tremendously useful. I'm not saying that with negative. So, you know, you take anybody's religion and tradition and short prayers that effectively are mantras. If you look at the last... The last word, the last instruction of Revelations, which is the last book of the way I understand. I know the Bible was assembled by people, but coincidentally, in the assembling of that Bible, literally go to the last sentence of of Revelations, and it says, "Come." And so, if you take the Thy kingdom come, thy law will be done. If you take the, if you strip away all the things that you're asking to come, what are you really saying? You're saying come. And their whole Bible ends with come. And if you hold in your heart that notion, love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, and if you hold that sort of thing and you, and you get really right down to the punchline and you say, well, what is it that I really need to do? What you really need to do is say, come. You know, that becomes the entire prayer. The entire sadhana, the entire spiritual life being surrounded around that one principle that is saying, here I am and there's God, however I perceive he or she or it or whatever to be. And so me, as whether I think of you know, primary dualism and, and I and God will never meet, or I think of, as non-dualistic, monistic, that we're one eventually, however I hold that, in some sense you finally come down to come. And so any one of those is a mantra. Some people will bash mantras and say a mantra is not useful unless it's an initiatory, empowered, shakti-filled mantra. And there's some essence of truth, but I think it gets overstated, personally. Swami Rama said to people, he said, use, use whatever mantra in your own language and like that, it's, it works. But there's some value in that. You know, in a transmission mantra, because they, it is they're empowered with shakti. I, I know a lady who prided herself in having raised a couple children. At the time, the two boys were like in their early twenties. This woman prided herself in that she was always the first person up in the house, and had been like that for twenty years. She was this in charge mom. She was up at whatever it was five o'clock before everybody was in, getting things ready and this and that and the other. And she got a mantra. Next day, couldn't get out of bed. And instantly, I mean, just day after day after day, it went on for months. She couldn't get out of bed in the morning. 
And and, and so it, it <laughs> there's a potency in some of these things. There's a transmission and a potency that has to do with helping you gently love. If you say come, just go to that principle. If you say come, well, if you're going to meet, then the thing that, that, that has to happen is that the obstacles that we have put up between me and meeting God have to be removed. I mean, they just, they have to go away. There's just no way around it, somehow. And so it can be painful or it can be, you know, in little pieces. And this, so this is the way empowered mantras work. And, and they just, and, and they may be stark and quick with some things noticeable like that, or it's a very, very slow, one metaphor that's used is if you have a, a container filled with ink, and you put one drop of clear water in it, nothing happens. But you keep putting drops of clear water in, and gradually the colored ink overflows, and over time, eventually, the water will be clear. And so some spiritual paths, are they're sort of accelerated. I want the fast, painful route, or, or karma plays out faster. But that kind of approach, particularly if there's a potency to it, it's gentler. Swami Rama said when, it, when he was three or something like that, I don't know if it was two or three or four, his master gave him mantra. And, and, and he said with a little youthful, childlike haughtiness, I already know that. <laughs> master said, I know that. I know, I, know you, I know you remember it. I'm just validating it for you. I'm just confirming it for you. See, a haughty little kid. I already know that. The way to give a mantra person is listen. Mantra sadhana, spiritual practice, whether it's a given mantra like that or it's this thing with come. You can read all the books, you can do all the prayers, but if, if your mind and heart grasps onto this thing that said, wait a minute, this come business, there's something to this, you know, then you find that it becomes part of your life and you in in your in meditation time you're just on your own you take a few minutes there and you're just you sit there and all the other books and learn you just it sets aside automatically because it's it sits with you and that's all i'm saying it just it gently happens over time so it's so one using mantra in in that kind of way maybe sitting there feeling like nothing's happening but when you look when you look back over a year, two, three, five, ten, as you just it doesn't have to be ten, but but one, you, you're just like you know something's happening. You know I'm shifting. I can feel it. Things are you know I'm understanding intellectually things I didn't understand before. My the little things that were in my mind are not troubling me. There's just it's that clear water going into the bowl of ink, and it's just happening so slowly that you may not even notice it. You may even mind even questions. So come on, this can't have to do with that stupid word. Well, maybe. One of the things, if we put it in terms of yoga sutras, just because there's a particular little sutra one can go look at and say, oh my gosh, there it is. It's, and you know yoga sutras, it's an outline, and so it doesn't give a lot of detail. But it says that there's a commingling. Let me back up. When we talk about this, this gross, subtle, causal, and absolute, the four levels, when we come out into the gross level, we have nama-rupa. Sanskrit they call nama-rupa, name and form. 
at the deepest level, there is no words. There is no pictures. It's the thing that... I keep going back to Genesis. It's the thing... In the beginning, God manifested heaven and earth, or God created heaven and earth. What was there before heaven and earth? Time, called beginning. What was there before time? Only God, or only truth, or only Brahman, or only absolute, or only something. So something happened out so that there's a primary duality or something like that that's called heaven and earth, and then something comes out of that, and the Lord said, let there be light, and there was light, and then there was all this stuff, and everything comes out. And so somewhere along the way, we end up with, with, with form. And so when we say there's a co-mingling, we can talk about from the outside going in or the inside going out. From the outside going in, it appears to be a co-mingling. When you talk from the inside going out, it's not a co-mingling, it's a manifestation of two things out of one thing. You with me? Okay, from the outside going in, something will appear to be have a, a commingled. There appears to be a commingling, as if parts were put together and created a whole. But if you look from the inside going out, you realize that it's the opposite, that what happened is out of uniformity came diversity. One thing split into two, and those two split into four. But from the outside, you see the four things, and you say, oh, let's put those four things, paste them back together, and we'll have a whole again. Okay? So outside looking in looks one way. Inside looking out, it looks very different. So with that said, but because we're out here in ignorance, in avidya, because we're out here in this, and we're trying to understand that, we naturally look from that place. So... Yogis use the example of a cow. I use the example of an apple because we're all familiar. We're all, you know, I don't know. Most of us don't have cows at the house. You guys could probably do well with cows. You don't have a cow right now, but they have cows across the street. We don't have cows here. I use the apple example. You, know, you want to play the apple game? This is an easy way to do it. Think of an apple. You got everybody got an apple. Mm-hmm. Describe to me the apple you thought of. Really? Big, small, small red apple that have a stem and leaves. That have leaves or only a stem? No leaves but a stem. What apple did you think of? A medium red apple. Yeah, a little bit of yellow. Just okay, some, some yellow. Nice, shiny. Shiny, yellow, and it had some leaves. What apple did you think of? Well, at first, mine was red. The red delicious with a stem. Um... Little dull, you know, but but then you know, not really polished. Up, yeah. You know, just natural kind of like. But then it changed to a Granny Smith. A Granny, very, a green Granny Smith very apple. Bright green. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So we have a bright green apple, a yellow apple, and some red apples, and some are shiny and some are dull. Some have stems, some don't. Some have a leaf on it or two, or and some don't. So we have four different apples. Right now, when we when we look closely at this, it appears if we step back, it appears that what we have done in our brains and our minds has commingled some things. Now remember, this is going from the outside in, and what we have commingled is three parts. We have commingled the sound vibration, apple. If we spoke Spanish or French or German or Hindi or some other language, we would use a different word. 
right? Apple, apple. It's a certain sound vibration, you know, which is different than banana. Different sound vibrations. So we have co-mingled apple. Okay? In your case, it was a particular green Granny Smith apple. So that's another piece of the thing. Well, there's a third piece. This is the harder one to get, but it's easy. The third piece that we have co-mingled is the archetypal essence of apple-ness. So you got four different apples that you thought of, but yet each one was an apple. And, 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 and this is try to think of this not just as a philosophical argument, but as a literal reality. And just to sit back with that child's mind and say, wait a minute, but I did think of an apple. And so did he think of an apple. So there, there is such a thing as apple-ness that is without particular form of being small, medium, or large, red, green, or yellow. You with me? Now, mind has a tremendous difficulty doing that because as soon as you do it, your mind comes up with a specific apple, true? Doesn't it? I mean, you go back to your green apple, he goes back to his red apple. A small or large apple, with or without a stem, shiny or dull. But if you can really stretch your mind, you can almost get to that stance that says, wait a minute, I can almost hold the notion in my mind of appleness, but without any particular color or shape or texture, etc. Right? So what we have commingled is the essence of appleness itself, a particular apple, and the name or the word or the sound vibration, Apple. We've commingled them. Okay? When the universe manifests outward, you know, and, and the human being manifests outward, we end up using words. And so those words, in some sense, are an unreality. Now, the way in which esoteric traditions use that phenomenon is to say, they may not say it in exactly these words, but they're saying, let us use words to get back to the source from which the words emerged. So what I'm trying to get back to is the wordless reality. In the Apple example, what I... What I now, we want to go past where I'm about to say, but we want to get past the sound vibration Apple and I want to get past my own personal hang-up with green apples. Because what I'm trying to do is find the essence of appleness itself independent of any name and any particular apple form. I want to just sit in my deep meditation on the nature of appleness itself. Right? Now, if I'm going to do that, somehow I have to find a way to jettison the name apple and the particular apple that keeps coming in my mind. I have to find some way to, to let those fall away. Then I can meditate on, dwell in the reality of the essence of appleness, independent of words and names and of a particularized form or color or shape or texture. And so the notion is, how do I do that? There's this old story that says, if you, if you get a thorn in your foot, how do you remove the thorn from your foot if you can't pull it out with your finger? Well, you break off another thorn from the plant. You use the thorn to remove a thorn. 
So if I'm trying to get past words, I use words to get past words. I, I use name to get past name. I use an imagery to get past an imagery. Make sense? And so, but in the case that we're talking about, we're talking about how to get to, to, to divine or God or truth or something like that. Those who start to seek esoteric, deeper, mystical, whatever you want to call insights, we're going to find those comments either in, in the scriptures, in the writings, in the teachings that, that tell us something about what to do with that. And if we look at it closely, we'll see of necessity it's going to be like that. Because if it's true, the, the, if it's true, and it seems sort of obvious, if it's true that words and names are just sort of manufactured things, and that real truth and reality is underneath those in the silence, well, this then we're talking about a universal process that is independent. I mean, it becomes self-evident. It just it's sort of an aha thing. It becomes self-evident that this process is independent of any particular belief system or religion or culture or tradition. Simply the part that says that we have a habit of when we have an object, we give it a name and we speak it with language, with some sound or another. So we use some sound to represent that thing. Universal process. And so we also come to see that it's a universal process that if I want to go back to the, that out of which all of this gross universe manifested, I use that tool, trace it back where it came from. So if I'm trying to find my way back to that truth, I may simply say, come Lord. And I'm using that word. I'm using a Sanskrit mantra or an Aramaic mantra or a Greek mantra or an English mantra or a short prayer, compact prayer. It's using the word to get back to the thing that the word came out of. Is the idea. And as we do that, we, we all can have this experience ourselves, and, and every, we, we've all had it, just with the simplest of meditations, where when you have a nice meditation sometime, and you look back, and I ask you, please tell me about all the words that were going through your head at the time of that meditation. You say there were none. And yet, tell me about the nice meditation. Tell me if you ever had a nice meditation where there were a bunch of words racing through your head. It might be calm and peaceful, but it's, it just doesn't work that way as far as a nice, pleasant meditation. When you go to the, the use of a name, of a person, of yourself, one of the things that can happen a child is born, is given that name. The child doesn't know any better. After a while, you know, the, your dog comes to know his own name. How does, a how does a dog learn a name? Well, they hear a sound vibration. They hear a recognizable sound vibration. And they come to know that that sound vibration relates to me, the dog. Just like if we say the word apple. How did that happen? At some point, we were little itty-bitty babies. We did, somebody said apple. We didn't know what they were talking about. We just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But somewhere along the way, we came to know that apple meant is the sound vibration that goes along with that object. And when I want that object, I just automatically say apple. 
And so you think of your own name that you use, that was given to you when you were born. And if what you're trying to do is wake up to who you really are at the deepest level, then one of the things you run into is this name I've been using for all these decades, in fact, is not who I am. And so one of the things that happens by having a spiritual name or a traditional name or something like that, one of the benefits of that, I'm not saying everybody should change their name or do that, that's not what I'm saying, is as soon as you're given that name, it goes right through the mind immediately, say, but this is not who I am. Somebody calls you that new name, and for a little while you don't respond because you're not conditioned to respond to that name. Somebody would say initially, Oh, hello, Swamiji. And I would look around. Where's Swami Rama? Wait a minute, they're talking to me. I'm not Swami Janeshwar. But then it's seeing, and, and so the benefit that it has with, with names like that is that it causes, it causes a cognitive, there may be many benefits. So a lot of names, a name that has some inherent meaning is, is inspiring. But the other thing that I'm talking about that is happening is there's a cognitive dissonance that happens. It does not compute. In the microprocessor of your, of your mind, it doesn't compute. That's not who I am. I'm this other name that I've been using for decades. But in that does not compute phenomenon, you realize, but wait a minute, that's not who I am either. And so for, for years, you sit there and you just don't even question it. This is, this is my, this is who I am. Of course, it's not. And so instantly, it moves out of the world of theory into just cold, hard, slap-you-in-the-face fact that says, wait a minute, this name I've been using is not who I am. Nor am I my degree or my letters that I put after the comma at the end of my name. We have a lot of retired military around. And, and, and you think of the number of people you've met who are still called Colonel. Or Sarge. You, you, see, you know, you're still Sarge, but you retired 30 years ago. And the truth is that who you were, you were never Sarge in the first place. Saguna and Nirguna. Do you know what the gunas are? If we say that that the universe and that the universe and we as people emerged out of something, at the material level, we all know about protons, electrons, and neutrons, and so everything in the gross world is is some form or another of combinations of protons, electrons, and neutrons. That's all there is. And so the suggestion is that at the even subtler level, that when you know when all there is is God, when all there is is oneness something goes into some form of disequilibrium so that there can be a manifestation. In the Genesis term, something has to shift so that you can have heaven and earth pop out as being distinct from one another. There has to be some fundamental difference between them. And so the notion is they call these primal elements or essences gunas, G-U-N-A or G-U-N-A-S, plural, the way we write it in English. And the notion of these gunas is that they're 
inherent characteristics manifest outward through all the levels and layers. So it even comes out into the gross world. And so they are called Sattva, Rajas, and Tamas. And I, here's a few words that help go with them. And I'll say it a couple times. Sattva. Balance, order, pure, positive, orderly, light, as in light versus dark, or lightweight. Rajas is active, dynamic, moving, energizing, impelling, driving, propelling, fluctuating. Tamas is inactive, static, stable, steady, inert, negative, dark, heavy. If you were going to have an apple, if you were going to eat an apple, would that be mostly sattvic, rajasic, or tamasic? Eating an apple more goes along with pure, positive, light, and lightweight than it does steady, inert, negative, or dark. What if you went to a restaurant and you had really spicy, hot food? That spiciness, that pepper, that's, that's a rajasic. It's very energized. You know, well, what did you put your spice on? Did you put it on fresh vegetables? Or did you put it on stale, old, dead animal meat? I know there's a bias in that, but... Uh, But the point being is that the three gunas are apply in, in food. Which would you want to be dominant in a personality? A lot of people are hyper and high-strung and just lots of anxiousness. There's a lot of rajas going on. Another person is down in the dumps. They're a couch potato. This is called tamas, tamasic. There's one thing that can happen very easily, unfortunately, is we're trying to be sattvic, we're by, trying to be light, we're trying to be spiritual. And and we lose sight of stability. So what we want is balance. If I don't have any tamas to go along with my sattvas, I can, I can be real spacey. I'm not grounded. I'm not centered. I'm not balanced. I'm not doing anything in life. I'm just walking around saying that I'm spiritual. And so what's needed is some rajas. and need to do some actions. I need to balance it with stability in life. And so these three play together. As you take those three concepts, you can chew on them and, and just apply them to literally anything. Anything. And, uh, you know, that's food and personality. World affairs. World affairs, yeah. Where are we in world affairs right now? Are we sattvic? Rajasic or Tamasic predominantly. It certainly doesn't look like there's much Sathic going on. And then we could probably debate which is, whether it's mostly Tamasic or Rajasic. It's certainly a mixture. And we need some more Sattvas. Sattva. And the nature of Tamas we have is dead and inert rather than a stabilizing force. And the nature of the Rajas of the action is so filled with its negative side that it's not useful actions. So we can play with these gunas in a lot of different ways. Now the deal with the words saguna and nirguna, 
Sa means, short version is Sa means with and Nir means without. And so if we're applying this principle to says, how do I get to the highest ultimate truth or God or divine or whatever you want to call it? One is the path of Saguna and the other is the path of Nirguna. Now there's a tricky part of this thing because if we look at if we look at the word Brahman as meaning the absolute reality and we're talking in terms of non-dualism this notion of recall the difference between immanence and transcendence this is a, a term that's used in religious studies I wish it was talked about more it's a part of bona fide legitimate religious studies not of just any one particular religion the notion of immanence and transcendence. So in the transcendent view of God, I am here and God is there. And the two never commingle. They're never together. And I'm saying that, I'm attempting to say this in a way that's not taking sides. I do have my side on this. But but I think there's a way in which we can look at Saguna and Nirguna and not get caught in taking sides. The imminent view is the one, in my opinion, the imminent view is contained in the, the parable of the yeast in the bread. The one that says, when you put yeast in the flour and the water and you mix it all up in the dough to make the bread, there's no place in the dough that there's no yeast. It's completely interspersed within the whole of the loaf of bread. And that's the imminent end of this thing. And that's the notion that says, God is infinite. And if God is infinite, there is no place anywhere that he, she, it is not. If God is infinite, then God is in me. And, and, and there's nothing that's not God. So that would, that's an example of the imminent viewpoint. And so one can, one can take a polarity and say, I believe in the imminent viewpoint or I believe in the transcendent viewpoint the two are not mixed, God is in heaven and I am here and the the two don't work together, we can personally choose to follow one or the other or we can be in a place that says to me they both make sense, that both are going on together. And I'm not trying to... It seems to me pretty evident that that's what's going on, but I'm not saying that in the sense of trying to convince anybody else that most people following religion do not see the imminent view, they see the transcendent view that I am here and God is there. Another way of addressing that is this question of esoteric versus exoteric. Are we looking at an exoteric, external, orthodox religion or are we looking at the esoteric end of the very same religion where the saints and sages of that tradition, that religion, have uncovered the higher truths and end up saying that the universe is one or the Father and I are one or some such words like that. We we come to see that they dance nicely together. This esoteric, esoteric is a polarity, the imminent transcendent. If we personally, individually have a belief that I'm supposed to be here and just not, it's not about direct experience, it's about how I live now and in my afterlife I'm going to meet God and certain consequences are going to come from that, then we may not even look at these questions, we may not explore this thing that I'm talking about. But if we have some sense 
if somehow some of that rings true, sounds right, feels right, and we individually say, what I'm trying to do is attain that direct experience of whatever we call that thing. And then we pose the question, well, how do I get there? Okay? The notion of saguna and nirguna is that I can predominantly do one or the other, or I can commingle them. On one end of the spectrum, the nirguna person, if you say, I'm going to sit, we were talking a moment ago about this, this if I can, may call it this mantra, come Lord, or it's just saying come. If it happens to be that what that means for me is I am going to sit in a meditation and I'm going to meditate, I'm going to find a way eventually to meditate on the formless truth reality. In the apple metaphor, I'm going to let go of appleness. I'm going to let go of all of the names and words. I'm going to do that yogic approach that says, I'm simply going to let go of everything. And in so doing, eventually I will simply rest in my true nature. I will come to know truth, self, God, something. You with me? It's all an emptying process. This is approximately, though there may be different ways of approaching it, this is approximately the nirguna approach. Any object that's in my mind, any word, any subtle essence that is there is not what I'm looking for. I let it fall away. I'm going directly to nirguna. That's what I'm attempting to do. Remember, nirguna is simply saying I'm attempting to go to that level that is without attributes at all. Notion being, if I can do that, then the whole question of who, God, he, she, it, whatever, ends up resolved in direct experience. Because there's no gunas. I'm going past all of the primal elements of creation or manifestation, and I'm going directly there through some method of meditation and contemplation. Okay? If I go to saguna, this is saying I'm going through the path with gunas. So I may say to myself, I may know that my temperament is such that when I try to just do this empty thing, all that happens is that emotionally I just feel empty. I feel bored. I feel, I feel cold. I, it's like there's no warmth in this. There's no love in this. If that's what I'm feeling, then what I'm saying is I need an object on which to focus my love. And so if I have a concept in my mind of the nature of divinity or God, he or she, whatever that concept is. And in a sense, irrespective of whether he or she or it really is there as that form, I'm not taking sides in whether he, she, or it is or is not there, but in a sense, irrespective of that, if my heart is singing and saying, this, just, this approach that is all totally empty, 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 drives me nuts because I just I want to I want to love somebody I, I want to you know I want involvement I want engagement then the path there is the path of saguna and if we put it in God terms it's saying that I want to fall in love with God if I wanted to fall in love with an apple well then I need to know that I like Granny Smith green apples and then I'm just going to completely merge myself in Granny Smith green apples so instead of letting go of all apples, I'm going to go into my chosen apple. 
Now, if I'm sitting there and I'm trying to think about large green apples and little red ones and those middle-sized yellow apples, my mind just stays confused. So better that I let go of yellow apples, let go of red apples, and I just meditate on green apples. And I do it with the intent that I'm going to go through, somehow I'm going to go through the nature of green apples. And by so doing, one of these days, it's as if the green apple itself will suspend itself and say, let me reveal to you my true nature as, as the essence of appleness. That's saguna. And if we hold this notion of saguna, now that what I'm about to say, I'm not trying to take a, I'm trying to not sell a religious idea, but we're stuck with the awkwardness of this. So for one person, that ideal is Christ. It's the image of Jesus on a cross, or, or, you know, the image of Jesus sitting on the on the top of the mountain teaching, you know, or standing with outstretched hands. You hold one image, just like one apple. Or, or it may be for somebody else. It's the image of Jesus in the manger as a baby, and somehow that's what you resonate with. But it's that one essence, that one image. For somebody else, it's Allah. And however the individual person holds in their mind Allah. And here I'm not talking about the issue that one should or should not make artist conceptions and drawings of Allah. I'm not getting into that issue. But in the mind, in my opinion, the esoteric end of Islam, this is what they're, in my opinion, and I may be completely wrong, This is the, I see something very nice in that notion that says, do not try to draw the image of Muhammad because it's got that, that essence in there of trying to go to the formless. I'm not claiming that that's a religiously accurate statement and that the scholars, the clerics would agree with that. I don't have that information. But the essence of that is there. So in the human heart, there's some notion of what Allah is about. For somebody else, there's a whole lore about Krishna and what he was doing, playing his flute, dancing, or standing in the chariot guiding Arjuna. And so he's a wise teacher. So for somebody that's, that's drawn to Krishna, the saguna that they're going through is the form of Krishna. Now, many of us who are doing religion of the transcendent version where I am here and God is there or I am here and, and the teacher is a representative in one way or another of that deity are not thinking through it this far because we're not actually trying to go to that depth. Many, many of us were raised in a certain family and church system or, or religion and this is just what we do. So we worship this deity, we worship this face of God and we may not even question. But if we do, then we come to see that just like I said, I'm going through the green appleness so that I can discover the essence of apple, and in, and in so doing, I simply just pay no attention to red apples or yellow apples. It's not that I'm walking around, you know, carrying a banner said, "Let's get rid of all of the yellow apples. Red apples are bad." It's just that I'm so in love with green apples. That's what I'm doing, and I'm going through green apples to get to the essence of apple. And if I'm so in love with Krishna 
that everything I see in this world out here is a manifestation of Krishna and his flute playing. It doesn't mean that I have to be opposed to others who are using a different face or a different set of saguna, a different set of attributes. Said this way, the, the lover of Christ can practice his or her religion in that way and can get to the Father by going through the Son. But then we human beings, we tend to miss that point that we're actually trying to go to something deeper. And we take sides and we fight over it. There's another polarity that goes with this, this notion of material cause or efficient cause. So what's the cause of bread? Well, the material cause of bread is, for the most part, flour. The efficient cause, the term they use as efficient cause, is the baker. So the cause of a loaf of bread is both flour and baker. So the flour is the material cause, the baker is the term that's used, is the efficient cause. And so in the path of Nirguna, which of those am I mostly focusing on? I'm focusing on the flour. I'm trying to go directly to the essence. These metaphors aren't perfect, but we're, we're dancing around metaphors to try to get a feel for this saguna, nirguna business. And if I go through the baker, it's more in alignment with the saguna form. I like the baker. What a great baker he is, she is. And so if I hang out with the baker, then I will find my way into the bread. In terms of yoga, another way of looking at this, at dividing this, and I'm even reluctant to say it in a way because it sounds like dividing, and I think we've got too much of that, is that jhana yoga and bhakti yoga. Jhana yoga being called the path of wisdom or knowledge, bhakti yoga being called the path of devotion. And in my opinion, unfortunately, we get those two split apart. It's like I'm purely bhakti, can sometimes meet... I'm just so emotional that I'm just not willing to introspect the nature of my mind. And so we lose part of the thing. And the other end is I'm so focused on knowledge that I misunderstand that it, the jhana means knowledge of the absolute and direct experience and think that it means book learning and scholarship. And the heart gets left behind. And while jhana yoga and bhakti yoga may have application for some people where all you do is one. It seems that the person that does only one of those is a very, very rare. And I'm not saying in that rare that that's necessarily better, just uncommon. And that what most of us have, the way most of us are made inside is that what we need to do is both of them. And yet recognizing that we have a predisposition for one over the other. So if we happen to be made of the stuff that is where I'm more of a thinking person than a feeling person, if I'm 60% a thinker and 40% a feeler, then it's saying that that, that that should be acknowledged and go in that kind of way. If I'm 60% feeling, rich with emotions, and I'm 40% a thinking person, then let me focus on the emotional part. There's just not that many people that are 100% one 
and zero of the other. We may, we may be 90-10. I think there's not many of those. But one helps clarify the other. And so they go together. But we need to know where our predisposition is. And we need to do it in a way that we're not just doing some denial thing. Where I'm, I'm doing escapism. I simply want to avoid. I'm in my head so much that I just I don't want to, I don't want to feel any emotion. Or I'm so lost in my emotions that I don't I don't want to I don't want to see in a thinking way what's going on. But in one sense, we can in a very general kind of way say that one of those leads somewhat more towards the nirguna approach and the other one is more towards the saguna approach. One is seeking to suspend attributes so I can get there and the other is seeking to go through those attributes. Again, I go back to the Granny Smith green apple. If what I'm trying to do is rest in the essence, in deep meditation, on the essence of apple-ness, there's two ways I can do it. One is the nirguna approach to finding appleness, and that is that any apple that comes to my mind, I suspend it. Any words or script that comes into my mind in relation to apples, I suspend it. Because I'm just wanting to directly absorb myself in appleness equating appleness with oneness or godness or universeness or something like that. The other approach is the saguna approach to an apple that says, okay, what I like is Granny Smith green apples. I can't seem to let, to, to let go of it, so okay, I will go into it. I will turn up the volume on my passionate love for Granny Smith green apples. And I'm not talking about eating them. I'm talking about in the meditation on Granny Smith green apples. And in so doing, what am I doing with the red apples? I'm doing absolutely nothing with red apples or yellow apples. I'm not trying to get them away. But the more I fall in love with my Granny Smith green apple in my mind, I just don't even see red apples. There's no aversion or attraction for the yellow apples or the red apples. They just seem to fade away. You walk through the marketplace or the grocery store and your eyes just go straight to the counter that has the, the green apples. The green, and you're just like radar. You just go to it. And if somebody were to say later, oh, did you see any, were there any delicious red apples in the store? I don't know. I have no idea. I didn't see any. Do they have any yellow apples? No, I don't know. You just didn't notice because all you were looking at is Granny Smith green apples. Unfortunately, we can get fights over that because then you may say, no, no, there, there just aren't any red apples. And the store's filled with them. And so we can fight over that. We can take sides and have wars between the green apple people and the red apple people and those really strange yellow apple people. There's this great insight that comes from understanding some difference between the approach through Saguna and the approach through Nirguna. And the notion is carried far enough they both lead you to the, to the same place. I was thinking of another metaphor of this. If I live in the southern part of the country and the goal I'm trying to go to is in the eastern part of the country, but I don't know exactly how to get there, I can walk out and I can just start walking in that direction and saying, if I just keep walking, I will get there. But then I've got a friend who lives in the west part of the country that knows exactly where that place is that I'm trying to go. We talk on the phone says, oh yeah, I'll show you where it is. But what you got to do, before you head from the south to the east, come to my house. 
and I'll take you there. So you take this, and I'm not suggesting that this is a detour route. It's an imperfect metaphor. So what I have to do is I go to the west, meet my friend, we get in his car, and then we drive to the east side, which is where the destination I was going. So I had two choices of how to get there. One is I just go there directly, and the other is I go to my friend, get in his car, and we go there. And you see, he knows how to get there because he's already been there. I've never been there. He can show me the way. And so all I have to do is faithfully, lovingly ride in, in that car with my friend, and he'll take me there. I can get there both ways. Both ways are valid. I can directly go there. I've never been there. I can find my way. There's some information around about how to do it. Or I can go through my friend. So one is near going to without attributes, and the other is let me go through the let me go through my friend. And that's the that going through the friend is the essence of bhakti and surrender to that face of God, to that divinity. when we forget we're part of the same ocean, if we were to say, well, who am I that's forgetting that I'm one with the ocean and how is this happening? The notion of saguna and nirguna, the way we're talking about this, is as two paths home. But to get there, we have to give some consideration to what are the gunas in the first place. I like that first verse of Genesis. Because to me it just says it all in the beginning. And I changed the word created to manifested. I don't know the original word. I use the word manifested. To me that goes back to the baker and the flour. Which created the, the loaf of bread? Was it the flour or the baker? And there's one set of thinking that says, no, it's the baker, it's the baker, it's the baker. And I'm in more in alignment with the part. I'm not saying opposed to that, but is the one that says... I, and here's a way of saying it. I, but we can argue these things endlessly. But the, the, the Christians use the, the prayer for our Father who art in heaven. And I know this may just be playing with the words. Well, where art Father? He art in heaven. Well, go back to that first verse of Genesis and look at what it says. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Where art God? Up there in heaven. God art in heaven and I art down here in earth. And so that's, I use the phrase primary duality. There's a, there's a duality there. And I personally am not saying that to reject that. If anything, I'm saying to affirm it. Because prior to the advent of time called beginning, there was no heaven and earth. All there was was God. Well, that's God as flower. You know. And so out of God as flower emerged time and what does time mean? Time simply means you can put things in sequence. This, then this, then this, then this. And to do that, what do you need? You need a playground. And the name of that playground is called Earth. And so if you're going to be a wave in the ocean and forget that you're the ocean so that you can say, I'm a wave playing in a playground, then you need, whether you call it, whatever you're going to call it, you need a heaven and earth. Or I'll say it like this, you need an earth. And so when you need earth, then you've set aside everything else. Well, what's left is called heaven. So we, we're a bunch of little waves. You see, we're actually the ocean, but we think that we're little waves. So we get to hang out and talk to each other as, as waves. 
And then in our ignorance, we naturally say that everything else is God. Ignorance not meaning that it's not God, but we separate it. And so then when we say, what's the mechanism by those happen, we get to talk about sattva, rajas, and tamas. So there's light, dark, and there's interaction. So we were talking about the apple being sattvic food, spicy food being rajasic, and dead, rotten, old food as being tamasic. We talked about sattvic, rajasic, and tamasic personalities and like that. And it's steady and it's stabilizing and you know, but in terms of what is the one that we really need to find in terms of awakening, we have to find the sattva because it's the one that's been clouded over by rajas and tamas. But in so doing, we as human beings, one of the mistakes we can make is we lose our ground, we lose the positive side of our grounding of tamas. And, and we don't put any we don't put any energy into it. That fellow that we were talking to yesterday, a nice fellow, he ended up saying, I need to do something. What he was saying is, I've been doing this stuff for years, and I need to put some rajas into it. I haven't actually been doing things enough. And so one of the ways I've heard this uh, is said, I like this phrase, is that rajas and tamas act in service of sattva. So the actions are in service of sattva rather than the actions being in service of tamas. And the tamas is there in service of sattva rather than the tamas being there in service of rajas. So if somebody has a stress-filled, chaotic, anxious life, the st- being stable in that is not a desirable thing. I mean, chaos, I just keep... I'm like the rat in the rat cage. I'm just running like crazy. Well, I keep doing that over and over and over. That's the rajas. But what's keeping me in it is tamas. The three have to work together. And if we don't have a little bit more sattva going on than the other two, we will not awaken. The awkward thing is it can end up sounding like, accidentally, unintentionally, that somehow rajas and tamas are bad. And it's not. But if all we're... Here's a way of saying it. If what we do is we have in the world equilibrium between those three, we may have a very nice, comfortable life, but we're not actually awakening to the higher truth. We're just having a nice, wonderful, balanced life. And so we need to have a little bit more of the sattva going on. And let the other two act in service of that. So in the, in the tree metaphor, the acorn versus the tree, who won out, not to make it a war, but who won out, the tamas that says stay an acorn or the sattvas that says grow into a tree, using rajas as the, as the means of doing it. Well, the tree is one because it grew into a tree. And I suppose we could look at all the other acorns laying on the ground that didn't turn into trees. I think maybe it's the it's the parable of the seed throwers. The parable of the seeds that fall on the good soil or the ones that just get trampled on the road and the ones that fall in the rocks, they describe the ones that fall in the rock. There's a little bit of dirt in there, so they start to grow, but they don't go anywhere because it's in a rock pile. It's not sattvic. It's, it's, it's a tamasic rock pile. It has a little bit of something going, but it can't grow. 
you want to sit for a minute? Okay, we'll do a little more like a guided contemplation than a meditation or a contemplative meditation. Notice how easily and naturally the body is still. Body is still. Notice how easily and naturally the attention comes inward, leaves the out there and comes in here. How easy and natural it is to explore the body, to be aware of the body, the head and the arms and the legs and the hands and the feet, the whole body. done it many times, so it's very easy to do. The body is still. And while the body is still, there's one thing still moving, the breath. Body is still, but the breath comes and goes. Notice the breath. Notice the transition between breaths. Allow it to be smooth, no pause. It comes and it goes. Notice how it seems to be that that breath is resting on top of a field called mind. Be aware of the field of mind. Allow that field of mind to be empty, wordless, formless. Allow to arise in that field of mind the word apple. Allow the word apple to come and go a few times in your mind. Notice how when the word apple comes, as soon as it's finished, it goes and there's silence. Do it again and notice that. Apple. Apple. The word is there, and then it's not there. Only silence. Now allow a particular apple to come to mind. It doesn't matter whether you can actually see with your inner eye or not. It doesn't matter. But think of one apple. It may be large, small, medium, maybe red, yellow, 
green. Think of that one apple. Allow the memory, the image of that apple. Allow that apple to come. Notice how it doesn't stay around so easily. It tends to drift away. You have to bring back the image of the apple. And you have to bring back the sound apple. Notice how it is that remembering the word apple leads you to silence after the word. Apple. Notice how the memory of the image of the apple, it comes, it naturally fades away. It may come again but it does go away for a moment. I can meditate on the apple, the image, and the word over and over and over again. And where I end up is with silence and the formless essence of appleness. Allow the mind to be silent and clear of images. Allow to arise in your mind field one word, one name. That name may be a name of God, may be a name of teacher. It doesn't matter which. Notice that your mind can easily produce that name. Allow that name to come and to drift away and to come again and to drift away. Again and again that name comes and it drifts away. But very gently keep bringing it back. While you do this, you notice when the name is there, there is a certain fullness or richness in the field of mind while it's there. Then there's a transition as it fades away. And there's a delightful silence. 
as if the remembering of that name of God or teacher is leading you somewhere. Now allow to come to arise in the field of mind some image doesn't matter whether you literally see it doesn't matter whether you see it or not some image it may be the visual image of that teacher some symbolic object whatever it is is okay allow it to come and just that one object, that one image, that one face, allow it to come. And notice how there may be two tendencies. One is for it to stay and the other is for it to drift away. It comes and it goes. Hold that image. Allow the name or the word to be there also. The image is there. The name is there. May not be necessarily the name of that image or object. There's a word or a phrase that comes and goes. There's the thought or memory of an image that comes and goes. They're commingled. And yet there's an essence underneath them. As if the name and the image or that one that is actually related to that name and image is guiding you, is drawing you further inward. As if you get some small feel of what it's like to follow this form, this saguna, with attributes. And then it drifts away, and there's silence, and there's formlessness. As if somehow your mind has the ability to wrap itself around even formlessness and silence itself. No longer any name. No longer any image. Only the still, silent, clear space. Formless, nameless. No name, no form, only stillness and silence. Only stillness 
and silence. Some small sense of nirguna, of that without attributes. And now once again, allow that image to come quickly and the name to come quickly. Allow them to be there. The image is there. The name is there. And now smoothly, yet quickly, allow them to go again. Stillness and silence, formlessness, nameless. Notice how form and formlessness dance together. Notice how name and silence dance together. I can choose one alone and do that. I can choose the other alone and do that. I can allow form to lead into formlessness. I can allow name to lead into silence. Notice that field of mind as a field of mind. Notice in that field of mind breath is still there coming and going. Still field of mind is there. Silence is there. Breath is superimposed on top of that. And on top of that, external to that, is this body. Be aware of the body. Stillness and silence is still there. So too is the image and the name, and the breath, and the physical body, all coexisting. And then while remembering these, especially the stillness and silence. Allow your eyes to open. Allow your eyes to open. The stillness is still there. The silence is still there. The formless is still there. The nameless is still there. The eyes are open. And yet that form, that image, that chosen image is still there, resting on top of the formless. That name, that word, 
is still there, resting on top of the silence. Field of mind is there, breath is there, body is there. And so is this external world that I see with my eyes that are open. Remember. Remember, remember, remember. Om. In your meditation today, may your body be still and comfortable. May your head, neck, and trunk be aligned. May your breath be smooth, slow, serene, and with no pauses. May the flow of thoughts in your mind not disturb you. May your meditation today bring you peace, happiness, and bliss.